And uh, the title of your talk today is uh, The Vagueness Argument for Panpsychist Universalism. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. I like that title too. It took me along. Okay, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks to Michael and the organizers for organizing this unique event. So, yeah, so I've written three papers violently arguing against panpsychism, which Ludwig and Pier Francesco have responded to. So I was hoping to be kind of the enemy at this event and have lots of interesting debates. But unfortunately, I've recently been converted. So I'm now panpsychism, so it's going to be a lot less fun. So, I mean, in a way, I think this isn't the ideal, well, we'll see, maybe not the ideal audience for this, because I've got this paper that's tr trying to, assuming an audience opposed to panpsychism and trying to persuade them, but I guess it's sort of a more sympathetic audience here. But anyway, we'll see. So, has everyone got a handout? There's been handouts going around. No. Ah, there's some. <laughs> everyone have, anyone not have a handout? So, I use the word consciousness to pick out the property of being a thing such that there's something that it's like to be that thing. Okay, so there's something that it's like for a rabbit to be cold or to be kicked or to have a knife shoved in it. There's nothing that it's like in contrast, or so we ordinarily suppose, for a table to be cold or to be kicked or to have a knife stuck in it, right? There's nothing that it's like from the inside, as it were, to be a table, or so common sense opinion supposes. And we can mark this difference between the rabbit and the table by saying that the rabbit is conscious and the table is not conscious. So to put it another way, consciousness is just the property of having an inner life of some kind or other. So, I've, so what I've tried to do there is try to explicate the concept of consciousness by giving you some of our common sense opinions about what kind of things are conscious. So common sense has it that rabbits are conscious and tables such as this are not conscious. Right? I think common sense opinion outside of this room is quite firm on this. Right? Um, but I also think there's a grey area. Right? So according to common sense, rabbits are conscious, tables are not conscious, planets are not conscious. I also think common sense has it that plants are not conscious, even though they're sort of living organisms with inclinations in some sense. But what about flies and ants? Okay, so when you see a fly kind of banging against the window, sort of in some sense trying and failing to get out the window, is there something that it's like for the fly to fail, to keep failing to get out the window? Is this, is this failure accompanied by some kind of pain or suffering? Um, or when the fly surveys its environment, is this accompanied by some kind of perceptual experience of the environment? Or is the fly just uh, mechanically reacting in a way it's mechanically set up to do? Or when it bangs against the window, is it just a sort of unfeeling reflex? So I, don't, I, mean, I, I don't think common sense has any opinions on this on the answer to this question. You might think it's just because we don't know enough about flies. Maybe you think, you know, one day scientists will find out a bit more about flies and we'll know whether they're conscious or not, whether they have an inner life. But it's difficult to see what more we could learn about flies that would settle this matter, right? So you can imagine one day we have a complete understanding of the behavioral dispositions of a fly and 
uh, a complete explanation of the physical mechanisms that realize those behavioral dispositions, it seems we still have the same question as pertinent as ever. Is the manifestation of those physical mechanisms, those behavioral dispositions, accompanied by experience? So I think even scientifically informed common sense just draws a blank here. Uh, one might object that if we one day discovered um, mechanical explanations in terms of physical mechanisms of everything a fly does, then that would just show that a fly is just an unconscious mechanism. But I think a worry with that thought is that the same might turn out to be the case with human beings. Maybe one day we'll have a complete explanation of what a human being does in terms of neurophysiological mechanisms in the brain. And that certainly wouldn't show that a human being isn't conscious. Right? We know from our own first-person perspective that human beings are conscious. So I think the right thing to say here is that common sense takes it that the predicate is conscious. Uh, let's write it up. That the predicate is conscious is a vague predicate, uh, one that admits of borderline cases, which I'm going to understand for the moment to be cases where there's no fact of the matter as to whether the predicate applies. OK, so just to be clear, so other exam examples of vague predicates are, for example, is tall. So um, some things are definitely tall. If you're seven foot, this predicate definitely applies to you. Some things are definitely not tall. If you're four foot, this predicate definitely doesn't apply to you. But then there are the borderline cases, right? If you're, I don't know, I'm not very good at things like this, 5'11", 5'10", then maybe, maybe there's no fact of the matter as to whether or not this predicate applies to you. Uh, another example is bald, right? Some, there are the things that are definitely bald. If you've got no hair at all or just a little bit around the sides, this predicate definitely applies to you. If, you're, if you've got a full head of hair, this predicate definitely doesn't apply to you. And then there are the borderline cases. If you look at the back of my head, I'm rapidly becoming one of those borderline cases. They're probably in a short amount of time. There will be no fact of the matter as to whether this predicate applies to me. And then a little bit of time later, this predicate will definitely apply to me, sadly. OK, so these are kind of reasonably uncontroversial examples of vague predicates. So I think common sense also takes it that is conscious is a vague predicate, right? It definitely applies to rabbits and people and chipmunks. I try to always bring in chipmunks. And it definitely doesn't apply to tables and trees and bits of plasticine. And then there are the borderline cases. So there's no fact of the matter as to whether it applies to uh, flies or ants. OK, so this is my claim one on the handout, that according to common sense, is conscious is a vague predicate. So I now want to convince you that there's something problematic with that common sense assumption. Um, so I think we've got good reason, which I'll explain in a moment, to uh, accept some version of what's sometimes called the linguistic theory of vagueness. So this is the view that vagueness is the result of semantic indecision, that for any vague predicate, there are multiple precisifications of the predicate, ways of artificially making uh, the predicate more precise, such that the meaning of the predicate does not settle on any of these 
processifications. Okay, so you can make that clearer with examples. Okay, so take the predicate is tall. Um, so I could just stipulate somewhat artificially that anything sort of uh, anything that's exactly six foot or more, anything that's exactly six foot or more is tall, and anything less than that is not tall. This is one way, this is one processification of the predicate is tall. It's one way of making the predicate artificially more precise. Or I could just stipulate that anything that's, you know, exactly six foot one inch or more is tall, and anything shorter than that is not tall. This is, again, an alternative processification of the predicate is tall, a way of making it sort of artificially, stipulative, slip, stipulatively more precise. Now, according to the linguistic theory of vagueness, the predicate is tall is indeterminate between these alternative processifications. So to speak slightly metaphorically, the predicate hasn't, as it were, made its mind up which of these meanings it's going to, which of these very precise meanings it's going to go for. Okay, so alternatively, with, with the predicate is bald, you could just stipulate that uh, something's bald if there's such that exactly 52.7% of the scalp is visible, and if less of the scalp is visible, they're not bald. That's one precisification of the predicate is bald, one way of making it artificially precise. Alternatively, we could stipulate that anything uh, which is such that exactly 59.976% of the scalp is visible, is bald, and anything with less visible scalp is not bald. That's an alternative processification of uh, the predicate is bald. And again, according to the linguistic theory of vagueness, the predicate is bald is indeterminate. It doesn't determine between those various specifications, as it were, hasn't made its mind up which to go for. Okay, so that's a very rough description of the linguistic theory of vagueness. And there are various forms of it, which bring in kind of more specific semantics. So why do we have good reason to believe this? I think the great, the great thing about the linguistic theory of vagueness is that it locates vagueness in language rather than in reality, right? So say you've got Tom, who's um, an indeterminate case of tallness, right? He's one of the borderline cases of tallness. According to the linguistic theory of vagueness, it's not that there's some weird, fuzzy, indeterminate state of affairs in reality where Tom is sort of neither tall nor not tall. Rather, Tom himself has a, an utterly precise height, right? It's just that the predicate is tall, is indeterminate, as to whether it applies to things with Tom's exact height or not. So the indeterminacy is in language rather than reality. Okay? And I, like many metaphysicians, think, you know, it's good all things being equal if we can avoid these kind of fuzzy indeterminate state of affairs in reality. Okay? So this gives us good reason to embrace the linguistic theory of vagueness because we have vagueness only in language not in the world. Okay, so that's this, this is some kind of support for claim two on the handout. The linguistic theory of vagueness is true. Okay. But I think this now leads to problems for, um, for the common sense claim 
the common sense belief expressed by claim one. Okay, because according to the linguistic theory of vagueness that I've just explained in a little bit of detail, every vague term has multiple precisifications, right? Multiple ways of making the term more precise. However, I want to claim the concept consciousness, the predicate is conscious, does not lack such multiple precisifications. It's not the kind of thing that admits of degree, and hence it's not the kind of thing that you can artificially make more precise. It's just not that kind of concept. Now, this is quite a tricky claim to argue for. I mean, the re I think the main reason is that the word consciousness is quite ambiguous. It's used in lots of different ways. Sometimes it's used to mean um, awareness or cognitive sophistication or something. And this certainly is something that admits of degree. So you might think of an, you know, an enlightened Buddhist monk as having a very high level of consciousness, and a mouse as having a kind of low level of consciousness, and human and you know, your average bloke being somewhere in between. Uh, but that's not the notion of consciousness. I'm dealing with. I'm just talking, as, as I said, I hope clearly at the start, what I mean by consciousness is just the property of having an inner life of whatever kind. Okay? And that does not, and that seems to me something that doesn't admit of degree, right? You either have an inner life or you don't. Right? It's all or nothing. As it were, the light of consciousness is either on or off. Um, that's supposed to sound profound, but it didn't. Um, I'm completely lost now. So, okay, so this leads me to claim three, that the predicate is conscious, lacks precisifications. Okay, so claim one and uh, claim two and claim three together imply that is conscious is not a vague predicate, right? Because the linguistic theory of vagueness tells us that every vague involves a claim that every vague predicate has multiple precisifications, but claim three tells us that the predicate consciousness lacks uh, multiple processifications. Okay, so we find that consciousness is not a vague predicate. Okay, just get some more water. Dramatic pause. So, okay, so this is kind of interesting result. We've found something sort of slightly wrong with common sense belief. Common sense belief thinks is consciousness is a vague predicate. It's not. But you might think that's not a big deal, you know, so what, conscious, uh, common sense is a little bit wrong here. But I actually think this claim for actually has quite remarkable, again, maybe not remarkable for people in this room, but anyway, quite remarkable implications which are kind of radically out of kilter with common sense opinion. Okay, so this is what I'm going to argue for in the section three. So, in the Bible, we have a story about God turning Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. And you get the feeling it, it happened pretty quickly. I don't think it specifically says that, but you get that idea. I do. doesn't matter. But imagine God did it in really small stages. Okay, so he, he changed a fundamental particle very, very slightly at a time. He takes Lot's wife and he kind of makes a tiny adjustment to a fundamental particle and a tiny adjustment to the one next to it until she's a pillar of salt, right? So you've got... So you've got a temporally continuous series with... This is Lot's wife. 
Good. Uh, to one end and this is a more challenging one. A pillar of salt. At the other end, okay. And in between, you've got this temporally continuous series of objects such that any pair of objects in this series which are next to each other in time only differ by a slight alteration to a fundamental particle. Okay? That, that's the idea. Does that kind of make sense? I mean, in some sense, it's making sense. Sorry? Uh, Ask God. Does that make sense? No answer. Okay, let's continue. Um, so, what's the point of this? Good question. Um, so, here's a common sense assumption, which I put on the handout. Lot's wife is conscious. Pillars of salt are not conscious, right? I think that's a fairly firm dogma of common sense. So we have consciousness here, and we have no consciousness here. So somewhere along this continuous series, the consciousness disappears, right? Now, if is, is conscious was a vague predicate, then somewhere we'd have the fuzzy cases, the indeterminate cases, where it's indeterminate whether the predicate applies or not. But given claim four, that is conscious is not a vague predicate, there are no fuzzy cases. There must be an utterly precise sharp cutoff point somewhere on this series where we have a pair of objects which differ only by a slight alteration of fundamental particles such that the former, the predicate is conscious applies to it, and the latter, the predicate is conscious fails to apply to it. So I think this leads to a really implausible consequence, which I've called on the handout implausible consequence. And this is that a slight adjustment of a fundamental particle can make the difference between a thing being conscious and a thing not being conscious. So why is this so impalatable, this, conscious, this, this consequence? I mean, I take it that consciousness is a macroscopic property. It's a property of quite big things, maybe whole organisms or their brains or at least large parts of their brains. So let's say consciousness is a property of brains. A brain has billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of fundamental particles in it. It's crazy to think that a slight change to one of those fundamental particles could make the difference between a brain being conscious or a brain being not conscious. Right? We would, left be, we would be left thinking, why was it that particle? Right? Why was it exactly that one rather than the one next to it or something? We'd be left with an utterly arbitrary and inexplicable fact about reality. So I think we have to reject this implausible consequence. But the implausible consequence is uh, implied by claim four and the common sense assumption. Therefore, if we're going to stick to um, claim four, we must reject the common sense assumption. Okay, so we're getting more into attacking common sense. So we have to reject the common sense assumption. So we either say that neither Lot's wife nor the pillar of salt are conscious, is conscious, or we say that both of them are conscious. Now, of course, we know that Lot's wife is conscious. We know that human beings are conscious from our own first-person case. Therefore, we are left with the conclusion that both Lot's wife and the pillar of salt are conscious. Okay? Quite a conclusion. However, I mean, it doesn't end there, right? We could... We can just take any pair of objects such that common sense says that 
the former is conscious and the latter is not conscious, and do the same thing, right? So we could have a rabbit here. Let's draw a rabbit. We could have a rabbit and a table. It's a rabbit represented. Representation is arbitrary. It's, um, what's that, a table, right? And we could, just, we could just, again, imagine God changing the rabbit into the table by slight adjustments to fundamental particles so that we've got a continuous series, pairs of objects. Any pair of objects next to each other in time differ only by a slight adjustment of fundamental particle. Okay? And by a similar train of reasoning, we'd be led to the conclusion that the table is, is conscious. Okay? So we're quickly led to the conclusion, which is claim five on the handout, that every composite object is conscious. So tables, planets, aeroplanes, shoes. OK, so that's, that's, the, that's the argument for claim five. I mean, that's basically the claim I want to make today. And I'm going to spend the rest of the time considering, on the second part of the handout, objections and kind of clarifying this position. That's OK, isn't it? OK, so objection number one. So I imagine someone saying that claim three is false. So what was claim three? That the predicate is conscious lack specifications because um, it's analytically true that something satisfies the predicate is conscious if and only if it satisfies a vague functional description which admits of specification. So the, the opponent I'm imagining here is a analytic behaviorist or an analytic functionalist who thinks that for something to be conscious is for it to have sophisticated enough behavioral functioning. Where sophisticated enough is a sort of vague notion which could be, in principle, precisified with some fine-grained enough functional description. Okay, so, I mean, in response to this objection, I just concede in a way. I think uh, I need... Uh, just, just the say goodbye to the rabbit. So I just concede. I mean, I think if you think that the predicate is conscious, I mean, it's sort of links to uh, to David's talk actually, because um, this kind of things you're saying about cutoff points. Um, so is conscious is just equivalent to some sort of no doubt vague functional or behavioral description, um, which could in principle be persistified. I think this is a, a nat you've got a natural way of making sense of the denial of claim three. You've got a natural way of making sense of uh, the predicate is conscious having persistifications. So I just, I just think that's fine. Um, but I still think my argument has dialectical force because I think there are many people who, um, who quite sensibly oppose analytic functionalism, you know, think that our concept of consciousness isn't analytically equivalent to some functional or behavioral predicate, and, st and still oppose, oppose panpsychism. So there, I mean, I guess that's the audience. So maybe this audience is inappropriate and not so. But I mean, that's the audience I'm aiming at, right? People who oppose panpsychism and also oppose analytic functionalism. Or, I mean, a closely related objection, an a, prior, a posteriori physicalist will, would probably say that there is an a posteriori. Uh, it's, it's an a posteriori true that 
something's conscious if and only if it satisfies um, some functional or physical description, right? For something, it's an a posteriori factor for something to be conscious is for it to satisfy some uh, functional or physical predicate, which could be vague and admit of precisification. Uh, so they, I mean, again, they have a natural way of getting out of my argument. Um, so in a way, I again, I can see this. I mean, but just note that, it, I mean, if you know at all about this stuff, a posteriori physicalism has a pretty counterintuitive implication. It has the implication that we don't know a priori what it is for something to be conscious. I think this is underappreciated about a posteriori physicalism, which is, you know, quite a popular view um, at the moment, because it implies that, you know, what it is for something to be conscious is for it to satisfy some functional or physical predicate, but we, we just don't know that a priori. So we don't know a priori what it is for something to be conscious. And I've argued elsewhere this is a really um, counterintuitive implication of a, a posterior physicalism, but I'm not going to have that argument here, right? If you want to embrace this kind of a posterior physicalism, my argument doesn't really apply to you. So basically, the point, so I'm, I mean, the point of my argument is the only really plausible way to uh, deny claim three, the only plausible way to make sense of the concept of consciousness admitting of precisification is to have some kind of conventional form of physicalism. If you deny that, there's just, it's just no other plausible way. You know, if you admit that to be conscious is to have a certain functional state, then that's a, that's a good way to make sense of denial of claim three. But if you're not a conventional physicalist, there doesn't seem any other even plausible way of doing that. So I suppose what I'm trying to say, I mean, it's interesting, um, Michael's talk about the connection between the hard problem and panpsychism. I suppose I think I'm trying to show if you reject physical, there's no middle way between physicalism and panpsychism, I suppose, this argument. If you reject physicalism, then you end up being a panpsychist for, for these kind of reasons. So that's who this argument's aimed at, people who reject physicalism, conventional physicalism, but still don't want to embrace panpsychism. And I think there are a lot of such folks around, so I think it's worth giving this argument. All right, very different kind of objection. Objection three. I imagine my opponent saying, uh, the implausible consequence is true. Supporters of the epistemic theory of vagueness will think that there is an unknowable but precise cut-off point where the predicate is conscious ceases to apply, just as there is an unknowable but precise cut-off point where the predicate is tall ceases to apply. Okay, so for those who know a bit about vagueness, so some of these objections get a bit technical. Um, so I've oversimplified my discussion, my, my initial characterization of vagueness. I said vague predicates are ones where there are borderline cases where there is no fact of the matter as to whether the predicate applies. The epistemic theory of vagueness denies that, right? The epistemic theory of vagueness says every predicate, there's always an exact cutoff point. It's just that we can't know where that exact cutoff point is, right? So with the predicate is tall, you know, there's going to be some exact height. Maybe it's exactly six foot, right? Where, where things below that height are not tall and things above the height at all. It's just that we can't know where that cutoff point is. Quite, I find it quite bizarre, implausible theory, but because, yeah, Timothy Williamson defends it and he's good at arguing. So, 
But, okay, so what would I say? So, so my opponent, my imagined opponent says, well, look, if you hold the epistemic theory of vagueness, then you're just going to say the same thing about this continuous series with Lot's wife and the pillar of salt, right? You're just going to say, look, there's just some point on that continuous series where the predicate is conscious stops applying and we just can't know where that point is. So it's the same kind of thing. But I, I don't think it is the same kind of thing in response to this objection. Um, because, I mean, even on the epistemic theory of vagueness, what is epistemically accessible is the range of epistemically possible cutoff points of the predicate. So take, is, take tallness again. If you possess the concept of tallness, you know that there's this range of you know, six foot, six foot one inch, six foot two inches, or just below six. You know that there's this range of epistemically possible precise cutoff points. You just don't know where it is, right? That's, that's how the epistemic theory of vagueness goes. But if the concept of consciousness doesn't even admit of degree, then there isn't such an uh, epistemically accessible range of uh, precise meanings of the predicate, right? There's just some unknowable point where the predicate ceases to apply. And that's, I mean, that is an exceptionally weird version of the epistemic theory of vagueness. So, I mean, as it were, I mean, just, you know, in, in the standard cases, at least there's this epistemically accessible range to kind of bridge the gap to the, uh, the bit we don't know about the extension of the predicate. But if consciousness doesn't even admit of degrees, we don't even get that. So I don't think this, I think this is pretty, the, the what I've called the implausible consequence is pretty impalatable even for um, an epistemic theorist of vagueness. Okay, so objection four. Okay, so here's some more kind of uh, less technical objections. So there's, there are various ways you can go with my argument. I suggest you embrace my claim five, that every composite object is conscious, but there are other options. You might reject the linguistic theory of vagueness and accept that there's vagueness in reality. Um, or you might accept the implausible consequence, what I've called the implausible consequence. So I imagine my opponent saying, well, look, panpsychism is just so crazy. It's just so crazy to think that aeroplanes are conscious that we're go it's just better to go one of the other two ways, accept the implausible consequence or deny it, accept that there's vagueness in reality. OK, now in response to this objection, I mean, I've given you some considerations, and I think everyone has to weigh up those considerations for themselves. I don't think I can give any knockdown argument. I, don't, I think it's very rare to have a philosophical argument where there's, you know, that every other option except the conclusion is logically inconsistent, and I certainly haven't done that. But I think I can say something in favor of, to justify uh, the way I prefer to go in going for claim five. I think it's, it's much better, it's much more epistemically sensible to try and avoid qualitative profligacy. That should be qualitative rather than quantitative on the handout. Qualitative profligacy and deep arbitrariness rather than avoid going against what most people currently think, right? Going against common sense opinion right now. So here I'm relying on David Lewis's distinction. I won't bother writing it up. David Lewis's distinction between qualitative economy and quantitative I find these words difficult to say. Quantitative economy, okay? 
So quantitative economy is when we just try to believe in as few things as possible, whereas qualitative economy is where we try to believe in as few kinds of things as possible. And Lewis thinks qualitative economy is much more important, right? It doesn't really matter if we believe in more of the same. The trouble is, the trouble, we get into trouble when we st start believing in more kinds of things, souls as well as material things, perhaps. It's part of his justification for uh, believing in lots of possible worlds. So whatever you, I mean, you could maybe accuse panpsychism of quantitative profligacy, right? You're believing in more conscious things than we otherwise think. But I don't think you can accuse it of qualitative profligacy, right? Everyone believes in consciousness. The panpsychist just believes in more of it, right? So I don't think there's a real worry about economy with panpsychism. I think people, the reason people object to panpsychism is nothing to do with economy or theoretical, serious theoretical virtues. It's just to do with going against what most people currently think. And so, I mean, I don't think this is a serious uh, epistemological consideration in theory choice. I think the other two options commit much greater sins. I think, you know, that if you go for vagueness in reality, you commit qualitative profligacy. You believe in these weird, radical, indeterminate states of affairs. I think we should want to avoid that. Or if you go for the implausible consequence, you believe in this kind of deep, inexplicable arbitrariness in reality. And I mean, these seem to me things it's much more sensible to avoid. I mean, I don't, it's, it's very mysterious, the whole process of what's epistemically sensible, how you weigh up theoretical virtues. I've got no good theory about that. I guess I'm just trying to appeal to intuitions of how some rough and ready rules of how we should weigh up these things. OK. How am I doing for time? Um, OK, so objection five. So I imagine my opponent saying, look, you just can't generate such profound conclusions about the nature of reality from abstract reasoning. So you've sat there with this clever philosophical argument, with an example from the Bible, and then you come up with the conclusion that aeroplanes are conscious and shoes are conscious. There's just, you know, something's gone wrong here. Even if we don't know what, we know something's wrong with this argument. You know, it's like Moore saying, look, I know I have a hand, so something must be wrong with sceptical arguments. And I, I'm to some degree actually sympathetic with this. I, um, I mean, it seems to me that armchair, I, I'm suspicious of a lot of metaphysics, actually, surprisingly, maybe as a panpsychist. It seems to me that we've got good reason to think armchair reasoning can tell us about our concepts, but I don't see why we should think it can tell us that our concepts are satisfied. And this is part of why I've got reason I've got a little respect for kind of common sense. Um, so, you know, I might sit in my armchair and reflect on my concept of free will and discover that my, you know, libertarianism best fits my concept of free will. But then, you know, what reason do I think, do I have to think that my concept of free will is satisfied rather than some compatibilist concept of free will? So in general, I, you know, I, I'm skeptical of the power of armchair reasoning. But I think... Um, with, when, when it comes to reflecting on consciousness, we're in the unique position where we have a concept that we know for certain is satisfied, right? For familiar Cartesian reasons, right? I can doubt many things, but I can't doubt that I'm conscious, or at least 
I can't doubt that there is consciousness if you're impressed by certain familiar objections to Descartes. So there's a, there's a proposition here, I am conscious or there is consciousness, that we know for certain is true. Such that there's, there's no epistemic possibility that it's false. And that implies that the concept of consciousness contained within it is such that we're certain that that concept is satisfied. There's no epistemic possibility that that concept is not satisfied. So I think in the unique case of consciousness, reflecting on consciousness, we, we, we are justified in taking a priori intuitions as a guide to the nature of reality. Because in general, a priori intuitions are a good guide to the nature of our concepts. And we have a concept we know for certain is satisfied. So I, when it comes to reflecting on, so in general, I'm suspicious of armchair reasoning. But when it comes to something that's delivered from reflecting on our concept of consciousness, specifically, I think the fact that our concept of consciousness in this case uh, lacks precisification, I think we shouldn't be surprised if it has profound implications about the nature of reality. OK, so finally, objection six. OK, so finally, you might object to this, that it doesn't necessarily get us panpsychism. Note that my final claim is that every composite object is conscious. But of course, we now have the question, what composite objects are there? So um, Trenton Merricks and Peter van Inwagen think the only conscious objects that, sorry, the only composite objects that exist are organisms. OK, so van Inwagen and uh, Merricks think the only things that exist are fundamental particles and organisms. OK, so they could accept my line of reasoning. I don't think they would, but they could do. And you know, they could say, oh, fine, that doesn't lead to panpsychism because it doesn't lead us to thinking aeroplanes are conscious because uh, there aren't any aeroplanes. Right? They just think there aren't any tables. There aren't issues. Um, OK, so in response to this, um, I mean, we, obviously, we still have quite a radical conclusion. We have the conclusion that if there are aeroplanes, then they're conscious. If there are shoes, they're conscious. So I mean, it's still a pretty impressive conclusion, I think, even though I do say so myself. Um, but, but I think there's something more we can say here. So this argument is very influenced, or to put it less euphemistically, stolen from the Lewis Sider uh, vagueness argument for unrestricted composition. So unrestricted composition is the view that any collection of, of objects form an object. So, so Lewis and Sider think, you know, not only do particles arranged table-wise or person-wise form an object, but part, you know, the, my nose and Sam's head and, and Venus form an object as well. That's, the, that's the, the doctrine of unrestricted composition. Any collection of objects forms an object. And the, the argument they give for this is very similar to the one I, or rather my argument, is very similar to their argument. So they say, so the way Sider puts it, I, I mean, OK, so the, 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 to, to see the, the connection between the two arguments, my crucial premise is that the concept of consciousness does not admit of precisification, does not admit of a degree, does not admit of precisification, and therefore is not vague. Their premise, roughly, is that the concept of existence well, they talk about the logical quantifiers, but basically the concept of existence does not admit of degree and so is not vague. Does not admit of precisification and so is not vague. So, so what they do, so they have a, I'll just give you a rough idea, a very similar argument. They, so they start off here with, um, this, well, this is the way Sider does it. 
an arrangement of particles which common sense says form an object, so a person or a table. And then at the other extreme, they have a collection of objects that common sense doesn't form an object. So maybe kind of atoms scattered across the galaxy, right? Common sense says there's, you know, there's no object that's formed from those atoms. And then they, they, they link uh, both these extremes with a kind of temporally continuous series of cases of kind of arrangements of fundamental particles such that any two of those cases which are next to each other in time differ only by a slight adjustment of a fundamental particle. Okay, so we've got uh, particles forming an object here and common sense telling us particles don't form an object here. And then, and then their point is, well, if the concept of existence were vague, then we'd have the borderline cases where we're not sure whether there's an object or not. But given that the concept of consciousness, sorry, existence is not vague, there must be an utterly precise cutoff point, right? So there must be an object somewhere, and then a slight change of fundamental particle means suddenly you don't have an object. And they think this is, this is implausible. It's implausible to think a slight adjustment of a fundamental particle can make the difference between having an object and not having an object. OK, so it's a very similar, well, I mean, I've stolen it, so obviously it's similar. OK, so, so if my line of reasoning is valid, then the Lewis-Sider line of reasoning is valid, given only the assumption, which seems a pretty plausible one, that the concept of existence is not vague, um, given that kind of quite plausible assumption. And so if we put the two arguments together, what we end up with is unrestricted composition. So every collection of objects forms a whole, right? So uh, my feet, Sam's kneecaps, and the planet Mars form an object. And also, that object is conscious, right? So we end up with what I call unrestricted phenomenal composition. Every single collection of objects, no matter how scattered, form a conscious object. And yeah, so I think that's probably true. And yeah, that's, I th I don't know, that's it, I think. Thank you very much. That's